The first reading is Psalm 73, the Psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not, a plague, not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with, with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far away from me will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell all of your deeds. The next reading is from St. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter two, verses seven to 12. But we have these, this treasure in, glass, in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We're always carrying around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we are alive and are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, may your word live in us, bear much fruit to your glory. Amen.
One of the strange things about the Bible is that it not only contains words from God or even about God, but words to God. Authorised speech to God, like the Psalms. That is, a speech to God, usually in prayer or praise, authorised in that in being in Scripture, they are, as it were, sanctioned by the Lord, as well as being inspired by him as he works through human prayer. And in this simple one-off sermon today, because the rest of all gone, as you can see, I want to speak about the darkness of serious doubt. Doubt. Because there are psalms that invite us to face the darkness of human experience honestly. They're quite remarkable like that. As one scholar put it, these psalms make the important connection. Everything must be brought to speech. And everything brought to speech must be addressed to God, who is the final reference for all of life. By the way, that quotes in the quotes at the front of the order of service, if you want to find it. So to the 73rd Psalm, 70, Psalm 73. A psalm which is a kind of story, a story of a struggle with doubt. And you may want to turn to the text which you just had read for us a moment ago, or, and my outline as well. The psalm begins with the premise of the psalm, which is also its conclusion. Verse 1, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. It opens with a Hebrew word, ak, um, which we English properly translate here, surely, which has a sense of emphasising what, that what's about to be said is kind of a new thought. Surely. Although it can have different meanings. It can be stated with confidence or a certain insecurity. Surely. And I think that ambiguity is there because when we see how the psalm will develop, we'll see that uh, this opening statement could just be a statement of naive shallowness, um, a buoying up an uncertain feeling. Because by the time you get to the end, however, it's, it's a strongly held conclusion. Because at the end of the psalm, the psalm has taken us through the trouble of doubt and despair out the other side. It is something of what the Russian writer Divyor Dostoevsky once wrote, and I quote, it is not as a child that I believe and confess Jesus Christ, my Hosanna is born in a surface of doubt. Close quotes. The psalm begins, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure of heart. And yet verse 2 sends us into the problem of the psalmist. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. He came to no longer believe that God was good to Israel, to those who are pure at heart. Or rather, he got to the very edge of giving up on that affirmation. The problem? Verse 3. For I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then with almost obsessive detail, he describes what he saw, what they are like. They have no struggles, he says. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common hurts, human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace and they clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff, speak with malice, with arrogance. They threaten 
opposition, their mouths lay claim to the earth, heaven rather, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how could God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Now, I suspect that's an overstatement. <laughs> but from one point of view, it's true. From one point of view, it's what you can see, even today. And he sees it, and it, it, perplexes, it eats him up. They, with their callous hearts, mock God and ignore, even defy him, live shamelessly for themselves. And the troubling and obvious conclusion is, it works. So we come to another ek, another surely in the Hebrew, verse 13. Surely, this time, it's to deny the thrust of the opening words. Surely God is good to Israel, to those of pure in heart. Verse 13, surely I've kept my heart, in vain have I kept my heart pure. I've washed my hands in innocence. In other words, it was pointless. He's bitter, he's disillusioned, it's been a joke. You see, it's not just that that's what the wicked are like, flourishing, always free of care. What's it like for those who are pure of heart? What about the pious psalmist, those who do fear the Lord? Well, verse 14, all day long I have been afflicted. Every morning brings new punishments. It's not just that the wicked get away with it, but the, but the godly are, are, are the opposite problem. Things are going badly for them. Let me just pause a moment and ask you, as it were, have you ever felt like that? All that you've done for the Lord, look what you got for it. Or perhaps felt like feeling like that, if you don't want to be honest with yourself. Later on in verse 21, he'll describe this time as, quote, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered. Now, literally, by the way, in Hebrew, rather interesting, it's my heart was bitter and my kidneys sharply stabbed. Different languages have different ways of describing emotions and the location of the body. The translation is quite right for an English-speaking audience, but there's something about stabbing in the kidneys which does seem extremely painful. That's how he felt. And that's what it does feel like. It's a painful sense of being let down by God. Not, not doubt in an intellectual sense. This is more personal, existential doubt. And out of this doubt is the threat of the psalmist giving up and changing sides to go with them, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth to change sides. Then there's a pause. As so often in such cases, the existence and expectations of others in the community can give a momentary check before it's too late. Verse 15, if I'd spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. As attractive as they are, and as bitter the psalmist feels himself, he cannot betray those whom he has responsibility for. If I had spoken like that, I would have betrayed your children. That is, I assume he's talking here about others in the community of faith. And that, that, not protecting himself, but as it were others, causes him to change direction. 
verse 16. When I tried to understand this, it troubled me deeply. Until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Until he entered the sanctuary, until he went into the holy place of God, he was troubled deeply. But there, presumably speaking of the temple, of the most holy place, where God dwelled in the midst of Israel, there he gained understanding in the holy place in the sanctuary of God. Instead of withdrawing, which would have been so extremely tempting, he has come closer to God. He has entered the holy place. And in the presence of God, the Lord, he has come to a new understanding that has turned him around, given him a perspective he did not have. He now comes to understand their final destiny, the bigger picture than the one, he, the one he saw that drove him mad. And so we get to our third uck, our third surely, in verse 18. We had one in verse 1, one in verse 13, now one in verse 18. And the tempting alternative of them is not as it appeared. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed? completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you despise them as fantasies. What had seemed so solid, so rich and powerful, so untouched, and no more substantial really, when you wake up, what were I dreaming? Because of the reality of God, a life to live shamelessly for oneself will be futile, empty, and vaporous. And now the psalmist looks back at how stupid he'd been because he was jeopardizing the only relationship he really values. Verse 21, when my heart was greed, my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Afterwards, you'll take me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? On earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my, my portion forever. See, he is weak and liable to fail. My flesh and heart may fail. But his heart is no longer grieved because God is the strength of his heart. Not simply has his doubt about whether it paid to keep your heart pure or wash your hands with innocence, innocence has been allayed with new information, it's that he has found the Lord himself trustworthy. And the Lord is not only good, he is the psalmist's good. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. Let me emphasize that the opposite of doubt is not certainty, the opposite of doubt is trust. The opposite of doubt is not certainty. The opposite of doubt is trust. And it's a trust that is, not, that is dependent and not manipulative. Let me explain by giving you a distinction between two different kinds of trust, what I'm going to call taxi driver trust and best friend trust. Taxi driver trust, sometimes you can trust someone 
or people or things, a way that increases your control of your life, puts you in the centre more and more. For example, and this is an ideal situation I'm thinking of, you, after church you say to a taxi driver, take me to Bondi Junction. Off you go. You're in back seat there or in the front seat if you're a nice person, in control. In fact, you're more in control because you can now go where you can't easily walk because you've hired that, you trust this cab or you trust... I call that taxi driver faith because you're trusting someone to do something for you. You set the agenda, I'm trusting it or you to deliver the agenda. There's a fair bit of control and certainty in that kind of trust. And it's, we use it both of people and machines all the time. Is that what trusting God is like? What about the other one, close friend trust? Now, this is very different. Think of you and a close friend. The difference is you don't trust your close friend to do what you ask. You might occasionally ask for a, for a favour, but that's not what the friendship's about. You trust the friend to influence and shape you in ways that are probably unpredictable to you, but except that you know they'll be good for you. You don't set the agenda for them. In fact, parting, part of trusting a close friend is you let them, in some sense, set an agenda for you. There's always a degree of uncertainty in this trust about what exactly they will do. You say, in effect, I trust you. I know you have my best interest in heart. So in a way, you often give up rather than increase your control by trusting in such a relationship. Marriages, too, should be of this character, I might add. It's a dependent trust in the person, not a particular outcome. Best friend trust, taxi driver trust, which is trust in God. It's the second. And that's where the psalmist goes. He does not have all the answers. He still sees the wicked. He does not know why they're still flourishing. But he's been to the holy place. He's been to the sanctuary of God. He knows their end. And more importantly, he knows God, who is his portion forever, whom he is near. Verse 27, those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. So it concludes. So what can we say about doubt? I have three conclusions. One, what can we say about doubt? Life is full of them. That's the first thing, even the Christian life. And often because of what the writer of Psalm 73 faced, a, a mismatch between what you believe about God, in whom you placed your trust, and the experiences of life in the world around us. I'm struck, for example, of how the great St. Paul, apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, actually experienced life as an apostle. In 2 Corinthians, he describes how God's light has shone in his heart to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Wow. But, as he goes on, I'm quoting now from chapter 4, verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay so that the 
all surpassing power is from God and not us. He then describes his experience. We are hard pressed on every side, uh, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not, not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, uh, but not destroyed. I like you, the old J.B. Phillips translation of the last sentence was struck down, but not, not struck out. <laughs> he is an apostle, right? Had met the Lord Jesus Christ in, in that road and received the gospel directly from him. And he described himself as perplexed. Perplexed, though not in despair. To be a Christian is always to wrestle with unanswered questions. In fact, be a Christian longer than a day, and you'll know that's true. Immediately, you know that's true. That's my first conclusion. They're everywhere. Second conclusion, but is there a sin of unbelief or doubt? I'm, not, I'm saying that doubt's a part of life, but is, is, is there a kind of doubt that actually goes beyond the pale? Yes, there is. Let me give another example on the human level. You're, you go to make coffee with your friend. Your friend is late. The first thing you think to yourself is, they don't care about me. They're a false friend. Would you be wronging your friend if that was your first thought? Yes, you would, you would be wronging your friend. You, friendship implies an obligation to trust the other person. You don't immediately be suspicious the moment something goes wrong. They just might be unpunctual or delayed. Not they've given up on your friendship. That would be a betrayal of the friendship. Same with God. To doubt God whom you know like that is actually itself treading into disaster. The, the writer of Psalm 73 knew that. He knew it got to the very edge. The very edge. Another clear example is in Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is, uh, is a psalm of entry into the temple. We often use it in morning prayer when we have it to open our service. Let us come to the Lord to sing, sing to him. It's about, about coming to God's place, to meet him and worship him. But then there's a warning in the last bit, a warning about hearing God. Here's part of it. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness, when your ancestors tested me, they tried me, though they'd seen what I did. Forty years long, I was angry with that generation. I said, there are people whose hearts go astray. They have not known my ways. What was it they did? What happened on that day at Massah, which has caused this reaction from the Lord? I'll tell you what happened since Exodus 17. They had just been rescued from slavery in Egypt by the most astounding, remarkable ways by the Lord. Great acts of power and, and wonders. And they've been delivered through the sea to safety on the other side. And they'd been promised that God would plant them in his sanctuary, in his land. And then one day, the water ran out. And what was the first thing they said? When the water ran out, I quote, Did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? And elsewhere you find other statements. Are there no graves in Egypt that you brought us out into the desert to kill us? The first thing they say is, you are distrustful. You are trying to kill us. You can't be trusted, right? 
He meant God meant to wrong us. That's the first thing they said the moment things went, went, went pear-shaped. There are people who, who hearts go astray, have not known my way, says the Lord. That's, now, that's the distrust. That's the, that's the doubt which needs to be very carefully guarded against. In, in the quotes, I've got a quote there by American philosopher uh, Robert Adams, also a Christian. And I think it's a really, I've always, a very important insight. He says this, and I quote, and you take it home and think further on it. The central form of the sin of unbelief in the Christian life is not a refusal to assent intellectually to theological truths, but a failure to trust in truths to which we assent. So, get that again for those at home, or you should download the, um, uh, the order of service. The central form of sin, of the sin of unbelief in the Christian life, is not a refusal to assent intellectually to theological truths, but a failure to trust in truths to which we assent. A failure to trust truths about God, which we assent especially. An ongoing trust like that can lead to ruin in your Christian life. But make no doubt about it. That bitterness can destroy. That's my second conclusion. The third conclusion is a slightly more positive. <laughs> How was the author in the story of Psalm 73 held back from disaster? What, 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 what was it? There were two things that we saw. One was the community of faith. If I'd spoken like that, I would have betrayed your children. Others, his sense of obligation to them. And that's still true today. The temptation when feeling bitter is to withdraw and to deny. But he did not do that. He was aware of his obligation to others and that held him from the fatal move. The other thing was this. He said, I entered the sanctuary of God. He took his crippling doubt to the Lord himself in some way. He engaged in the worship of God. And I believe that these two, the community of faith and ongoing prayerful engagement with God himself, even when you have no idea of the answer to what's really annoying, frustrating you and, and despairing you, that will hold you as it held this man. Let's pray. We bless you, Father, for the words of Scripture and this particular psalm and whatever lay behind it. And we pray for each of us here and those uh, at home watching that you'll enable us to be protected, not from doubt, but from distrust of you. For Jesus' sake.